Okay, if you would please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, I'll be reading verses 15 and 16. Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Father, I pray that none in here abide by or live by unbiblical conclusions concerning the grace of Christ. But that we live by the clarity of the Gospel unfolded to us through Your Apostles. And that we see biblical logic of the life of everyone who has been justified by faith in Your Son. Oh, may the power of Your grace be working this morning and how we hear and how we receive the truth of this glorious gospel. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the fifth and the final week on this brief series on justification by faith alone apart from any works. And so after Four weeks trying my best to let the clarity of Scripture on this issue speak of what a grace it is to be justified in Jesus Christ. By Him alone, by His grace alone, by faith alone, apart from works. I've been a Christian for 34 years and it still never ceases to amaze me that many professing Christians conclude from that that there is no necessity of genuine Christians, and I use the word necessity on purpose, of genuine Christians to be pursuing holiness, to be pursuing a love for God, an affection for Christ, even though many people who have been brought in churches and evangelistic meetings by preachers who say, Jesus died for you, so now ask Him to come into your heart. Make the decision now so that you don't go to hell. And then they say, you're saved. You're justified. Even though many of them have never had and do not have any genuine love for Jesus. Any genuine supernatural union with Christ by the Spirit. And it's evidenced that the love they say they have for Christ is not producing any obedience to love your neighbor as yourself. It's no accident within conservative American evangelicalism, particularly in the early and the mid-20th century, down to today, people don't just sit in their showers, read the Bible, and come up with these conclusions in evangelicalism. It was taught to them. Let me give you an example. I know Serge would probably remember him too, but back in the 80s, one major radio preaching voice was Mike Kors. And he's a representative of thousands of churches and preachers that teach the people that this is what Christianity is. Let me give a quote from his published 
work. The Bible requires repentance for salvation. And just so you know where I'm going, I totally disagree with him. Here we go. Not on that part. What he says next. But repentance does not mean to turn from sin, nor a change in one's conduct. Biblical repentance is a change of mind or attitude concerning either Christ, God, dead works, or sin. Repentance means to change one's mind. It does not mean to change one's life. That's stage two Christianity that some enter. That's how it goes. That's not biblical Christianity. If you've been here for four weeks, and if you haven't, they're all available on the website, on the internet. Here's what I've said in a very short nutshell, and what the Bible teaches. We sinners who deserve eternal condemnation, who truly come to Christ, we are justified. Made right before Him, declared righteous and forgiven the sins. We are justified by faith plus nothing else. The faith that I tried to unfold last week, it's only one thing, saving faith. Divide it up into three pieces, like three pieces of a pie. If you only got two, you don't have this faith. And so what we saw last week is that saving faith, it's not a mere decision or agreement with the Gospel. That's necessary. Oh no, it is a change of your desires that have been miraculously changed by the Holy Spirit who brought you to faith and united you to a person, Jesus Christ. And fruit, that that's true, is the evidence that your profession of faith is the genuine faith that justifies. Okay. I'm going to spend, I think, about a minute and a half. Just listen understanding this is what Paul preaches and preaches and preaches and preaches. It's what the Apostle John preached. Okay. If you take an understanding of the grace of God and how a person is saved, and then when you read other things like what Paul will say, you have no way to fit it into your conclusions, you probably have totally misconstrued the meaning of Christianity. So for instance, Paul will go on to say in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, circumcision nor uncircumcision, these religious acts, none of that means a hill of beans. He says it, it counts for nothing. But what counts for everything is faith working itself out in loving other persons. Well, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5, starting with verse 19, And now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And things like these, I warn you, Galatians, he's talking to people like us, professing Christians, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
John, the son of Zebedee, in his old age, writes to the church in 1 John 2, starting with verse 2, Jesus is our propitiation for our sins. Yes! And by this we know that we have come to know Him. How, John? If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Christ, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In 1 John 3, 5-6, you know that He, Christ, appeared to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him, He was there when Jesus would speak these great words, abide in Me and I in You. No one who is abiding in Him practices there's a huge difference here. Lifestyle, unrepentance, practices sinning. No one who keeps on practicing a lifestyle of sin has either seen Him or known Him. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. That's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. So that no one will boast. For we... See, Paul believes in supernatural faith, not two pieces of a pie. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. New birth. He, he created us, made us new creatures, created in Christ Jesus, saved by initial act of faith, done based upon nothing that you do. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One more. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7.19, very much like Galatians 5.6, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what counts for everything is keeping the commandments of God. So, let me put it in a nutshell, five weeks, which is including this week. Mathematics, the equations. Faith, the whole pie, comes alive, tastes and sees the gospel's good. That's faith. I trust you. Equals justification. Not faith plus anything else. Faith equals justification. You are made right with God forever. You will never be unjustified if this is true of you. Now, out of justification, because the justification comes with union with Christ, will flow the New Testament doctrine of sanctification, a pursuit of holiness, a battle and blood-fought battle to the death against your remaining sin, a life of repentance because you will never not sin down here. But the difference is, as John says, you are walking in the pathway of light and not in the pathway of darkness. And that life is the evidence of whether genuine faith is in you. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Alright. What I want you to do then is turn to Romans 13 for a moment. Here's the question. So, I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> so, so I, Paul, I'm a legalist on my way to hell. And Jesus saves me. Okay, now I'm saved. Now I go back to legalism. Well, I mean, what is it, what, what's going on here? Listen to what Paul says to the church, starting with verse eight of Romans thirteen. No, um, excuse me. Oh, no one anything. Don't become indebted to them. Don't owe them. Don't be obligated. Oh, wait a minute. Except for one thing. This is what you owe. 
them. Be obligated to this. To love each other. And then he says, For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And he explains that. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. It's a very unloving act if you do. You shall not murder profoundly unloving act if you do. You shall not steal a horrific act towards others if you do. You shall not covet in any other commandment. Are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So that's the question. What role does the moral law that God has revealed to us about what is right and what is wrong, what is sin and what is righteousness, what does that law, what role does it play in the justified person's life, the genuine Christian's life? I think this text is helpful because you've got to ask the question, why did Paul say, this is what you owe? Love one another. Why does he say it in Galatians that way? It's faith working itself out in love. And then he goes on in Galatians there to say, oh, you're free, you're free. You're not under this burden of of list keeping. You're free in Jesus. Therefore, do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. For love is the fulfilling of the law, he says in Galatians. Why does he say love one another? Instead of just saying, do these lists. That's what I want to try to get out for the rest of our time. And I think it's a profoundly important reason. Because all kinds of Christians do lists. And they don't have genuine love for Christ that is overflowing in genuine love. I want to get at the heart of Christianity here. As we now stand on having been justified by faith alone, the question is, what do I do the next day? In the next? In the next year? How do I live now that I have been justified? Totally apart from works of the law. Only by grace through faith. That's the question. And so what I want to start to do, I want to, I want to go back and try to get into Paul's mind concerning the law. Okay? Paul's caused lots of problems for us Christians for the last 2,000 years with his writings. Particularly with using the word law and works of the law, faith, etc. So let, let, me, let me take a shot at it and work step by step. To Paul, how do you understand the law that came from God through Moses in history up to the point where he says what we just read. Oh, now that you're justified in faith, love one another. For as you do, that is the fulfilling of the law. What, where did he come from and how did he get there? So I want to turn to Galatians 3. Start there. In Galatians 3, verse... 17, Paul says, now when he says law here, he means the Mosaic law. The law that God gave through Moses. He says, the law came 430 years after the promise that God made to Abraham. Okay, you got to get it. Abraham is the model of justification by faith. God says, Abraham, count... The stars, I can only go so I can't count them. Okay, so shall your descendants be. You and your wife who have been unable to have children. In the text says, Abraham believed God. And it was imputed to him. His righteousness. Abraham was justified. 430 years before God ever gave the law. This is Paul's argument, right? The law can never justify anybody. 
This is his whole argument. The law doesn't come so that you can start doing it and thus come alive to God and be justified. And so, what does he say? Look at verse 19. He asks the question, well, if that's true, Abraham's already justified. 430 years later, he sends Moses, gives the law. why, Why the law? See it? Verse 19. Why the law then? Answer, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring... Now, in Paul's mind right here, this means Jesus. Until Christ, the offspring, should come to whom the promise had been made. And and then he asks in verse 21, well, okay, is the law, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this, do this, is the law then contrary against the promises of God? Absolutely not. Certainly not. Why, Paul? Because, that's what the word for means, because if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, Paul just said, that the law that God gave through Moses and we have in our book, the first five books of the Bible, specifically the commandments of how to live and not live in those first five books, he says, God gave that law, but that law could not do something. It could not make a sinner alive. It couldn't bring them life. Why? Okay, let me... Because of Adam. Whether we like it or not, in the Garden of Eden, the representative of human nature sinned and plunged all human nature into a state of death towards God. Plunge this all into sin nature so that I and my children are all born as sinners. Not just people who, who, who sin. We sin because we are sinners at the core of our being. We are rebels against God. So the idea that later on when God gave the law of Moses that, hey, do this, don't do that, that that could revive and make dead sinners alive to God to be justified is absurd to Paul. The idea that we dead sinners can have God come and speak to us and say, stop doing this sin and by our obedience we would, okay, I stop that, we would then be made alive or justified before Him is absolutely absurd and a misreading of the law of God. Why? Because for Paul, and I know he has the Spirit of Christ, we need something much more than just turning over a new leaf as the law comes. We need a Redeemer. We need a substitution. We had a representative, the first man, and he doomed us all. And then we sin freely, meaning we do what we want in sin, And we're implicated on both counts. We had a representative. We needed another representative to face temptation in His humanity and do it perfectly in obedience to the law of God as our representative before God forever. And we needed the substitute so that He would bear The punishment that the law pronounces is called the curse of the law. And therefore Paul says here in Galatians 3.21, why the law? Well, the law was given, but it didn't come with the ability to give you life. 
didn't raise you from the dead. Paul will say later, Romans 8, 8, 3, what the law could not do, which is give you life, God did by sending His own Son and condemning sin in the flesh. So then back to the question. Okay, why did you give the law? What's the deal? God, if you know that we cannot keep it, it can't make us right with you, it can't fix the sin problem just because you tell us about sin and righteousness, why did you give it? I'm just going to read a couple texts. There's many more, but all pointing in the same direction. Paul says in Romans 3.20, The works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since, here's one of his answers, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Everyone, Sin. Everyone has a sense of sin. And Paul argues at the beginning of Romans, those who don't have the law. But then when the law comes and spells it out in black and white, print with ink, it just becomes all the sharper, clearer. And the transgression, therefore, becomes even greater. That's what he says in 5.20 of Romans. Now the law came... Okay, why why the law, Paul? Now the law came, it came in, in order to increase trespasses. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as it, as sin reigned in death under the law, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, and oh, how the holy, perfect, good, and righteous law of God, because of sin, increases the sin of we sinners. One way it does it is, Law? Tell me what to do with my sexuality? On whether I can cheat in the marketplace? Law? Give me law. So sin expresses itself. To the place we have an entire culture on human sexuality right now. An absolute rebellion. Increasing. Increasing the depth of its sin. Or, okay, now I'm a Jew. So how Paul would speak. According to the law of Pharisee, as to the righteousness in the law, the way I read it, blameless. Really? No. His condemnation was heaping itself up deeper and deeper. Because, oh, God's got a law. Got to get a minute. Adam plunges into sin. Okay, I'll do that. Do it better than she will. And, And as I work in my religion on the law, Paul is saying, your sin is increasing all the more. Because the idea that you twisted it and thought that God can give you law and now you will do something and come alive to God and somehow merit heaven. Somehow have your good deeds outbalance your bad deeds will deal with the problem of your spiritual death. He says it's absolutely absurd. So the law comes and it increases sin. So, if we're going to have life, eternal life, then we must get that life not from the law, but from someone. who will live that law perfectly on our behalf and who will bear the punishment that the law pronounces against us so that our guilt be removed. And that is Jesus 
Christ. That is the second Adam. That is the gospel of justification I have been preaching the last four weeks. Every human being needs Jesus' blood and His perfect righteousness. They need the great double imputation. My sins on Him and punished and put away and His perfect obedience to me forever before God. This is why Christianity does not fit into all the world's religions. Because in one way or another, even the atheist religions like Buddhism, one way or another, they're all about law. They're all about standards. They're all about do this, don't do that, do that better, move your way up. Only one, if I can use the word religion this way, only one religion in the world, the biblical gospel says, no, 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 you need a substitute. You need a Savior who will fulfill the law on your behalf and will bear the punishment that you incurred because of your sin against the law. That is the only way to be safe from the righteous, holy God. And it's all owing to Christ. So, in a nutshell then, Paul leading up here, his view of the law then, in all of its negative effects, as Paul so often speaks, his whole point is, the law, the law, it can't give you life, it can't save you, it only does justly, condemns you. The law, why was it given? It was leading to Christ. Leading to the only one the Savior who will save you. The problem is not that we need a new trick. Oh, maybe I've been approaching the law wrongly, so maybe I'll approach it from here. Maybe I'll approach it from, I'll trust God that He's out for my good. And you know I believe in this. This is the essence of, of, of the dynamic of faith. But the problem isn't, okay, I've been going wrong. I've been doing it legalistically, thinking I earned something. Oh, I don't think I earned anything. I just think God's gracious, and so I'm going to live according to the moral law. It's a great way to live. No, no, no. If you try to do the law without a Redeemer, you are just heaping up more sin. We all need Christ. He, not the law, is the way of life. Paul said it this way in Galatians 3.24. Just listen. The law was our guardian until, until, leading to, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith in Him. In Romans 10, Paul says, Christ is the end. It's, 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 it's the word telos. He's the purpose. He's, Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And now I want you to turn to the third one. Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 1 to 3. Listen very carefully to Paul. There, after laying out justification by faith alone, and then sanctification, which flows out of the new life in Christ in chapter 6 and 7, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a gospel. For the law of the Spirit of life. New birth and dwelling of the Spirit. New creature in Christ. That has set you free. In Christ Jesus, 
from the law of sin and death. Let me explain, Paul says. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, meaning flesh is our sin nature, because of the nature of our being to the law, could never... God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned. Sin in His flesh. So what the law could not do? It couldn't give you life. The law itself couldn't bear the curse that we deserve. It could not give to us righteousness. It only proclaimed what righteousness is and thus condemned us and pronounced a curse of judgment upon us. That's all the law could do. Something had to be done for us by God in sending His own Son. And so if we're going to have life, even though we're sinners, even though we don't deserve life, even though we deserve perfect justice of condemnation, if we're ever going to have real eternal life, we need a Redeemer. Someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, make ourselves alive, what the law itself couldn't do, make us alive to God, give us a heart of faith. We need someone to bear the curse of the law and remove the wrath of God from us so that He will in mercy from the cross grant new life to come alive. In Him. What the law could not do, God did by sending His Son. And Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the condemnation of the law. That's what he means by the curse of of the law. How did He do it? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so, ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam fell, we became sinners all in Him. And the only way to eternal life from then on out was always and only through a Redeemer, through a Savior, through a substitute who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the work of Christ that He did on our behalf is received by the hands, not of works, but by the hands of faith alone. Now, back to the question again. What do I do tomorrow? How do I live this life? God's not, He might not take me out the next day. He might give me 60 more years. So what does the life of those who are really in Christ look like? I'm justified by faith. Now what I do? What do I pursue? What do I set my heart on? What do I set my focus on? If it's been so clear that doing law, okay, ah, shouldn't go that way, I do that way, is not the way to life, then how do I live this life as a justified person? Do I... Oh, yeah, I remember I came to Jesus back in 1981. And yeah, I examined my faith. Is, my faith was real then. I, I look at it back. Yeah, it's real. Okay, I was justified then. And now I go on for the rest of my life and walk away from 
Christ, thank you very much, and now give me a list of ten commandments or 137 more in the New Testament about morality, and I just kind of do the list every day? You don't understand the Christian life if that's how you think. It's lived. It's not. And even worse, oh, I'm justified by faith in Christ. Grace means I don't need a list. Not only that, when God lays out that there is such a thing as justice, I just pretend justice doesn't exist because I'm a Christian. Or that right or wrong, it doesn't exist concerning human sexuality, concerning thievery, concerning whether you owe a person if you smack their car. We can go, I know, I'm, I'm under grace. As Paul would say to those people, your condemnation is just. If you conclude from the Gospel that. So, so, so which, what, do we, what do we do? See, I think Paul would say something like this. Now that I am justified by faith alone, I'm made and declared righteous before God forever. Christ, not my own righteousness Nothing I've done, even that God's worked in me, but by Jesus' righteous living alone before Him. Ah, I know that I have the Holy Spirit, God Himself, dwelling in me. I'm filled with His Spirit. So now I will continue to make my focus, my life, not the law, but Christ, Jesus, the lover of my soul, the treasure in the field. Every day, I will look to Him. But Joe, He speaks. Absolutely. Don't do that. Jesus said that. Absolutely. But there's a difference between saying, Jesus, you know the one way over there told me to live this way. It's another thing to wake up and know how undone you are and say, Jesus, please don't send me off to not do something or to do anything without you in my presence. There's a huge, huge difference. Listen, listen to Paul. Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had in my religiosity, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, stop. Put anything in there. You can, get, you can get two people that just raised in church. I'm 30 years old and I am a virgin. One can be pure legalism and one can be gospel-empowered living. Why are you? Well, yeah, I know, I read the, I know the commands. Totally different. Paul says, well, why, Paul, did you willingly lose everything that your life was built up to at that point? Which he did. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why, Paul? Because of the surpassing value. Treasure in the field. The surpassing worth of not knowing merely about Christ or knowing the Gospel so I can teach it but knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know 
Him and the power of His resurrection. See, for Paul, where he's driving through his epistles about the Christian life, it is about a miraculous union with Christ that is nurtured hour by hour, day after day, month after month, and year after year. A union of driving toward, pursuing, going hard after intimacy with Christ. And everything else is only a means to help you there. If you read your Bible because I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to, you're missing it. If it's a means to drive you to Christ, you're getting it. And so what Paul saying throughout his letters is, I'm going hard after Christ. My faith in Him overflowing and loving others. Oh, and by the way, that will be fulfilling the law. So back to Romans 13 for a moment. Remember, we read this a while ago. Oh, no one anything except to love each other because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law of Moses. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in the Word. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you see? Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So he says, not do commandments. He says, love. But then he does bring up commandments, doesn't he? But I think his order meets the purpose that he wants to drive home. He does say that love would be fulfilling the law. So why does he even tack that on? You know, in his context, I think he probably... Just made sure there, okay, I've got to tack this on. I haven't been to Rome yet. And, you know, we got Jews and we got Gentiles. And he's always been dealing with the problem of fellow Christian Jews. And Paul says, okay, you, you come to faith in Jesus. Now just love people. What's a, what are you saying, Paul? And this is what many evangelicals are blatantly saying and living. Are you saying, Paul? That morality, the commandments that point out what is in and of itself sinful or not in the Bible are irrelevant, we can hear those voices. Are you saying we don't owe any obedience to God's law? Are you saying the Ten Commandments can just be ignored? And you're going to make it to heaven? He hears this. And so I think that's why he tags on. Oh, by the way, you're loving other people that's flowing out of that life with Christ? That is the fulfilling of the law. But he hates it when the cart gets before the horse. He hates legalism and all forms. Paul is saying, I am not neglecting the moral law of God. I'm not neglecting God's commands that have been given to us in the Scripture. He says, when I say, owe no one anything but to love them, I'm saying the very same thing that will fulfill the moral commands of the law for Christians who are already justified. That's Paul. But he's saying, I'm getting at the heart of it. Because if I just say, obey these lists of commands I can grab out of the Bible, 
you may go off and do those things not looking to Jesus. Not in union with Christ. Not hungry for fellowship with Christ. And he sees a huge difference between the fruit of the Spirit that causes one to refrain from sin or to do good to another and mere human fleshly willpower. Yeah, I got one more text. On Monday, Wes and I were together reading the Bible out loud. That's a, I just love reading the Bible out loud with people. Oh, on. And, and as we were, I think it was probably the third or fourth time, can't remember, over I don't know how many times, Wes and I have tried to get through Romans 6. <laughs> and it just, what does that mean? It's so complex. And, but we eventually made it on Monday night into Romans 7 and about verse 4, and I felt like Michael Corleone again. And it drew me back into Romans 6 because... What he said in verse 4. I, had to, I just had to go back and read fastly. Let's go again. i got to get the flow here. And the more I think about it, what I'm going to read, Romans 7, 4, is at the heart of Christian obedience. And it's why I think Paul does not merely say, do a list of commands. He writes, Likewise, He's using the analogy of marriage from the law of Moses. You're married, you're married, period, until someone, one of the two dies. You're bound to that other person. You're in union with that other person in a marriage covenant. And then, when one dies, now you're free to be married to another. That's his analogy. So listen to what he says. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ through His death so that you may belong to another to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God so He says believer when Jesus died to bear the curse for your sin. You died in Him to the law. And when Christ in His humanity lived in perfect obedience to the law, you lived by imputation in perfect obedience to the law. And therefore He says, you are dead to the law. What does He mean? I think he means the law is not first and foremost your focus than what is. Who is is really the question. It's right there. Let's read it again. You also have died to the law. You're free from the law now. Like you're free from the marriage covenant when one with the spouse dies. You're free from the law. How'd you do that? Through the body of Christ. He died for you. Okay, why are you now dead to the law? So that you may belong to another spouse and not the law. To Him who has been raised from the dead. That's Christianity. That's what Jesus came to purchase. Those are the people whom He had justified. 
The walk of obedience in the justified person's life. That is, all those lifestyle changes and the repentance ongoingly in their life is about belonging to a person. Not about doing a list. It is about a deep Holy Spirit producing affection, love, joy in a man who lived 2,000 years ago and was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God now. That's Christianity. Christianity is not. I guess I'm a Christian, so I better follow a bunch of do's and don'ts to what the church says. It's not Christianity. We don't go to do's and don'ts. We don't, don't go to the law for life. Paul says we are dead to the law so that we may live to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul right here puts the risen Christ, the risen Jesus in the place where the external, written codes of morality used to be. And he says, no, Christ in you is the hope of glory. The life I now live, I live by faith in Christ who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Paul is saying that's Christian fruit. And that's what it means to not be under the law. It doesn't mean <laughs> we're not under the law, so don't judge me for committing adultery. Don't judge me for being selfish. Don't judge me for spreading malicious gossip. We're not under law. That's not what not under law means. It means we have new life in Christ. We live to Christ. And when Christ has spoken such things, there's a difference between you saying, I'm going to go do the list, or I'm living to Christ. Am I living to Christ? Wait, wait, wait. Why, why is my life so out of kilter with what He has said? Ah, oh, it's a reflection back to my heart and my living with Christ. Did anyone get that? There's a difference. Okay, so in other words, here's the point as I'm, I promise, closing in the next eight minutes. See, what happens... In a human being, raised in church, my kids are raised in church, your kids are raised in church, are they Christians or are they not? They'll tell us one day, and oh God, may they become Christians. But what happens when I've got to do this or that? I'm not supposed to do that. Not supposed to do that. The Bible says don't do this, that, and the other. What happens when that... Okay, I guess I want to be right with God. I want God to be mad at me. What happens when that becomes miraculously, turns into Christ is my all? 
Jesus is my treasure in the field. The, the truth of the gospel of justification by faith alone that the Apostle Paul laid out is such a glorious treasure. I can't get enough. Oh, Jesus, You bore my curse that the law pronounced upon me. You're my propitiation. You're my risen Savior. You're my high priest who's always interceding for me. You're the love of my life. You are my soul's craving. I daily live, oh Jesus, for the life of Your Scripture. Your Word. Oh, Your sayings. What You've said through all the prophets and the apostles are life to me. I am desperate daily for Your deliverance, for Your help. What happens when that, don't do this, don't do that, becomes that? That's what Christianity is producing. What springs from that belonging to another? The answer is right there in verse 4. You've died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to Him who's been raised from the dead. He is alive. One more clause. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Oh, by the way, that's the fruit that fulfills the law. You won't murder that person. You won't steal from her. You won't live in covetousness. You freely give off the top of your fruit significantly because... The gospel is the most loving thing on planet earth. And you listen to Jesus' words about the love of money. You lay up treasures in heaven. Because you're in union with Him. Because you're in union with Him, which is loving others. You won't destroy your so-called boyfriend or girlfriend by fornicating with them. You won't steal another person's spouse because you belong to another, to Christ, to bear fruit for God. So, after five weeks, you ask me, Joe, Are there people who are truly in Christ? Truly justified, born again, and then subsequently their life pattern. I don't mean all of us who sin and the Father who disciplines. Love this from the other night. Yanks us back onto the track of repentance and faith. That's Those are the ones who are belonging to Jesus. I'm talking about this whole life that goes on and on, month after month, year after year, but I'm a Christian. I said a prayer one day. Joe, are there truly justified people who go on never bearing any fruit for God? No. They're not saved. And their life is the evidence that they don't have genuine saving. So how do we live? You live by faith. You live in a relationship, in union with the one He married you to. Now the way to say it is, you walk by the Spirit. And you're battling, therefore, that other thing in you called the flesh. But you don't say, thank you, I'm a Christian. Give me a list what I'm supposed to do or not do and go do the list. It is a life of worship. 
It's a life of desperation, of union, of tears, of crying, of joy, of knowing you're doomed tomorrow to ever produce any fruit unless He is producing it in you. You give all your focus, not first and foremost to law, but first and foremost to your Savior, to the Father. And through the Word of God and through prayer and desperation, as Paul says, the fruit of love for others will happen. And oh yeah, by the way, that will be the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that your Apostle Paul said, and I know you had him say it on behalf of all of us who would follow him, not that I have attained, but I press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, may no one here read anything that was said outside of the reality that genuine Christians are in process. And through that process and through this word this morning, would you draw our affections, our hearts deeper and deeper to rest in you, to trust in you. Oh, Lord Jesus, to be overcome with joy in you. To bear fruit by the Holy Spirit.